Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. We can't fix what's wrong if we can't talk about it. We can't move the conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. And unless we push the edges of what it means to connect, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. Every month, I invite a fabulous big thinking guest to join me to talk about what it means to be human together. We'll have deep conversations about the big stuff, life, love, and legacy, and how you can foster connection for yourself. Let's start to reconnect the world, one conversation at a time. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. This episode is brought to you by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes facilitates the workflow of over 60,000 mental health professionals through a robust, secure, and streamlined software that's accessible wherever and whenever it's needed. To get two months free of Therapy Notes, go to therapynotes.com and enter the promo code CONNECTFULNESS. Today I'm talking to Dr. Stan Tatkin, a clinician, teacher, and the developer of the psychobiological approach to couples therapy, also known as PACT. Dr. Tatkin is also the author of several books on aspects of love and relationships, his most recent being We Do, saying yes to a relationship of depth, true connection, and enduring love. Through Dr. Tatkin's clinical practice, workshops, couple retreats, and the PACT Institute, he and his wife, Tracy, train therapists to use the PACT method in their clinical practices. Dr. Tatkin received his early training in the developmental self and object relations, gestalt, psychodrama, and the family systems theory. His private practice specialized for some time in treating adolescents and adults with personality disorders. More recently, his interest turned to psychoneurobiological theories of human relationships and applying principles of early mother-infant attachment to adult romantic relationships. Everyone's experienced some form of relational loss and developmental trauma. In this episode, we're talking about how our species has been built to survive with an inborn negativity bias, and how it's the same mechanism that can make relationships difficult and more challenging to sustain under stress. We're also diving into how early development shaped each of us and our ability to self-regulate, and how we can achieve safety, security, and attachment in our adult romantic relationships. Hi, Stan. Thanks for being here with me today. It's good to be here with you, Rebecca. I am so excited about your work. And, you know, one of the things that I really love about everything that I've read that you've written or your TED Talk is how you incorporate um, what you call the psychobiological approach to working with people. Because as I learn more and more about your work, I'm thinking, gosh, this is what the whole entire world needs, isn't it? Well, uh, you know, uh, John Gottman said some years ago that the field is moving, and I agree, towards more of a polytheoretical approach 
that incorporates not just psychological theory, but also medicines, uh, developmental neuroscience, in my case, uh, also arousal regulation theory. And, you know, our fund of knowledge needs to increase as we branch out into these other areas and we are treating the whole person more and more. So psychobiology is the study of the brain and the body, right? And impact uh, is a psychobiological approach where we take a developmental stance and uh, focus on infant attachment, infant brain development, and uh, particularly around social emotional acuity, people's ability to act and react uh, quickly, properly, in a way that stays, uh, that remains socially engaged for as long as possible uh, before they move into a hypothalamic response of fight or flight uh, or a life threat, uh, even worse, a response of uh, collapse. Can you break this down for our listeners? I know you often talk about the ambassadors and the primitives in terms of how you describe this, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could just give our listeners a quick overview. Uh, so the ambassadors in the primitives are really uh, sort of uh, bifurcating the brain, which is almost a sin uh, when thinking about neuroscience. But to make it easier, we're talking about primitive areas that are uh, sort of lower in the food chain, uh, connected more into the body that are based on recognition systems, uh, lightning fast memory systems that help us to survive. And so these are more survival-oriented, knee-jerk parts of the brain that usually require uh, error correction by the slower parts of the brain. Those are the higher cortical areas, the neocortex. And those areas, um, fortunately, are really good at error correcting, but unfortunately, they require a lot of oxygen and glucose to run. And when we're under stress, those areas, uh, their ability to operate properly are compromised. And so you have the faster systems that are, you know, uh, less uh, dependent on oxygen and glucose, at least the same amount, that will take over. Those are the primitives and will basically shoot first and ask questions later because our, you know, uh, we're built to survive as a species. And so we have all these areas in the brain that are dedicated to survival, um, including a brain that tilts toward the negative. And so this makes survival good, but it makes relationships difficult and more challenging because of this, because we're basically built more for war than for love. So um, the slow parts of the brain, the ambassadors are plastic, changeable, uh, malleable. Um, they're really smart. Uh, they're slow. And the problem with it is that uh, if there also isn't enough time, in other words, if you're not relaxed enough and you have to make decisions right away based on uh, a sense of urgency, you're not going to have enough time to error correct. Now, these slow areas should be uh, understood as also having errors as well. Um, the, the brain is uh, error prone. And so we really need all systems online. And that takes a certain amount of alertness and relaxation at the same time. That's what we call an optimal amount of arousal. And yet, I know you've studied a lot around infant parent dyads as well and attachment. So this isn't necessarily something that every child grows up having in terms of this ability to regulate this learning how to regulate in this kind of relaxed way that you're talking about. So we're not all set up for adult love relationships. 
Well, no, I mean, we don't really get to fully um, make use of the inhibitory regulatory uh, executive functions of the brain until around 30. For women, it's around 26. For men, it, it can be as, uh, as late as 30. And that has to do with the myelination of the frontal area. Uh, so no, in the beginning, we're regulated from the outside in, right? Our primary caregiver is externally regulating us. And that's the case pretty much throughout um, the first part of the life. We, we, we are also interactively regulating. In other words, face-to-face, uh, eye-to-eye, and many times skin-to-skin, we co-regulate with another person dyadically. And so that's happening in the beginning of life as well. But this idea of being able to self-regulate, to be able to self-inhibit, uh, and to hold ourselves from accelerating, that isn't uh, until about the 10th, 11th, or 12th month of life with the metabolizing of the frontal area. So that is later when we're able to be in a relationship that we consider an adult relationship. You know, I'm thinking back to my early studies um, just when I was in grad school and thinking of object relations and what you're kind of talking about here. And I know you've done a lot of work around object relations yourself. I'm thinking back to some of the early lessons I had about separation and individuation and kind of just how we start to understand ourself versus self and the other. Right. Those are, that's Mahler's terminology, separation, individuation. Uh, she was uh, uh, an object relations person. And uh, the people who ran with that in this country were the American object relations people. Uh, James Masterson, who trained me, uh, but then also Otto Kernberg, uh, Michael Rinsley, and so on. So um, I, I'm very much embedded into object relations theory. Attachment, basically, is an object relations theory light right? That's an object relations theory light because it only focuses on safety and security. It's not about personality. When you get into object relations or any uh, psychoanalytic developmental theory, you're also then talking about the developing personality, right? How do we, I mean, this is such a loaded question and I, I know that there's so many moving parts in this, but we're talking about safety and security and attachment. Yeah. And right. so can we just dive into that safe, secure place? Because this is the thing that I think so many people struggle with. They don't know how to get there. Well, it, again, um, yeah, it, it is a necessary condition for us to survive this life. We know from the Grant study, the longest, longest um, longitudinal study of any kind, studying what makes us happy, what contributes to longevity, what contributes to physical and mental health. And uh, without doubt, the, uh, the one thing that, uh, that is uh, affecting all three of those things is the presence of at least one secure attachment with another person. Now, hopefully we have more. But without that, you're going to, uh, it's predicted, you're going to be less happy, you're more prone to illness, and you'll die sooner. So um, but that doesn't mean that just being in relationships is an assurance of life, uh, you know, long life. If you're in a toxic relationship, if you were under a lot of interpersonal stress, if you were constantly threatened, that'll kill you soon too. So with this business of needing a safe and secure relationship with at least one other person whom you can depend on. Uh, with your life and vice versa, is really essential to the health of the human primate. But we have a problem because the human primate is essentially uh, a warlike creature that is moody and self-centered and fickle and uh, and given to impulses and is uh, you know uh, influenced by the larger group. 
um, is xenophobic, you know, always aware of what's missing, uh, what I don't have, and is always comparing and contrasting. So there has to be something in order to assure safety and security. There has to be a shared idea, shared vision that you and I have to have each other's backs. We have to trust each other and prove it every day. Otherwise, life is going to be much, much harder. I often quote you here when I'm working with my couples and I talk about the foxhole and how, you know, there's, I've heard you say this many times in many different areas, but you talk about how you can either have each other's back in that foxhole or you could be at war with each other. That's right. And, and, you know, there's something Darwinian about the war being in the foxhole, right? Um, These are how couples will self-select out because we know that couples that are warring are not going to last very long. And if they do, they're not going to be very healthy or happy. So, you know, here we're basing this on a uh, more of a primitive ideology, a shared mythology, if you will, of together we survive this life. Um, and either it's mutually assured destruction or it's mutually assured survival and thriving. It's our decisions to do one or the other. But when people are under life threat, like on the street, uh, you know, uh, we have a lot of street people who are secure functioning. They get it. They know that they have to take care of each other because they're in a hostile environment. And so uh, there's nothing like having uh, a dangerous environment to get people to work together, right? That's a third thing. So that's how uh, many times uh, communities and countries organize when they're under threat by the outside, they pull together. Uh, and But we forget that this life is, has never been friendly. It's never been predictable. Um, there are things coming that we can't predict, and they're not good. And we are either working together or we're working at cross purposes. And so the shared mythology of we're a survival team, I think, is fitting here. Because if we are not guardians of each other, if we don't have principles that protect us from each other and everyone else, then we are going to be vulnerable to the vicissitudes of life. And so this is where you talk about something like thirds in terms of how you how couples can manage their relationship by incorporating this idea of the we, that we're in this together. That's right. And, you know, uh, Tracy and I, my wife, uh, we're part of a consortium, a group called Relationships First, a bunch of relationship experts. And, you know, we're all involved in this movement of changing the culture from, you know, from an I-ism, a me-ism to a we-ism. Uh, because we've lost the idea of, of interdependency, and we've gone too far in the direction of autonomy um, and lack of responsibility. So we do, the name of the book really embodies lots of things. One is, you know, this is a we, not an I or a me or a you, um, but it also speaks to uh, social contract theory, um, you know, social justice, that this is what we do as a couple culturally. Uh, th- these are our principles of of how we govern, and this is what we don't do, and uh, and these are our sort of our laws, our principles, which I think are higher, um, that are like you know, thou shalt not kill, right? Easy enough for a five year old to understand why uh, why do we have uh, ten commandments that are so simple and pithy? Because people were concerned as well they should be that uh, that uh, human beings are animals and to civilize them everybody has to have shared ideas in order to uh, to honor their differences at the same time live together. So you have two people, a couple, the smallest unit of a society. They too have to live by agreements that are good for both people, right? 
We may disagree on a lot of things, but these things we agree on, right? Just a basic kind of agreement would be something along the lines of we won't throw each other under the bus. We'll- yeah, or, or said positively, we protect each other in public and private. Thank you for that reframe. We're, we're primaries, not secondaries. Um, we protect our, you know, our resources that we create, that we release, because we're assuring each other and comforting each other with regard to existential threats. And so together we govern, we lead. And if we're not okay as a couple, then everybody around us isn't going to be okay. So, And that's we, part of creating safety. That's part of creating safety, okay. exactly. And so going back to this negative bias that we have, you talk a lot about memory, perception, and communication, and how these things can kind of get us into trouble. Yes. I mean, most people do not understand the brain's error potentials, which are great, right? We're very clever creatures, um, but we're making errors all the time. You know, as we talk, which is also a dicey uh, proposition, as we talk and are using words, um, this is very imprecise. And we never really know how clear we are being. And we never really know if a person really understands what we're saying. And most of the time, much of the time, we're misunderstanding each other without realizing it. So our verbal communication is highly flawed. Um, and yet the brain takes shortcuts for energy conservation. And then we go with these errors and they become problems. Memory is unreliable, always has been, always will be. And even the recording of experience is unreliable and memory becomes less and less as you remember every time. So that's not really great. And our perceptions are like a funhouse mirror. We think we're seeing something and we're seeing something different. We think we're hearing something. We think we smell and taste something. It's being affected by our state of mind. So here's the formula for that. State drives memory. Memory drives state. And state alters perception. This is always happening. And so people fighting about memory or perception or who said what is really folly. You know, there's a certain hubris in a human being uh, that we think our memory is right. Our words were correct. Our perception is true. And none of that is accurate. And this is yet what so many people, what so many couples are fighting about. They're fighting about these contents of their memories or their perceptions. And this is always the stuff that's getting them into trouble. Right. So in a love relationship, in in a secure primary attachment relationship, fact uh, takes a backseat to perception and to the feeling in either partner of unsafety or insecurity. And in secure relationships, the relationship comes first, not being right. And so uh, in the interest of harmony, in the interest of of keeping the relationship intact, uh, I would be better off fixing, repairing any perceived bad intention or misunderstanding in you rather than argue with you. This is not being a doormat. This is not taking one for the team. This is simply putting the relationship first because I can never be sure how right I am anyway. Can you, because I know that you've studied or you've worked a lot around codependency as well as attachment. So I'm curious if you can help my listeners understand the difference between codependency and interdependency, because I think that's really what you're, you're leaning towards is the state of interdependency. Right. I just want to differentiate them. I was there when the term was coined. I was working with John Bradshaw at the time when Pia Melody and, you know, now I'm just blanking on her name, Melody Black, Melody Black, all these people um, came from the AA tradition and the co-alcoholic we were focusing on, the co-alcoholic and, and the alcoholic family system. 
Now it's morphed into a whole other thing and it's become highly pejorative for people. If I had my druthers and we could go back in time and I could take codependency to mean interdependency, that would be great. But it's come to mean something very different. It means today that I, as a codependent, I am living for scraps, for crumbs. I want something and I keep giving it in the hopes it will come to me somehow. And that makes me angrier. And I am basically in an unfair, unjust, insensitive relationship. That's one direction only. So, but interdependency, because we have to find words that click with people, um, most people at least, means that we both depend on each other for reasons um, that make us stakeholders. So, for instance, if we are, you and I are depending on each other to be safe in the world for survival, and we have each other's backs and we're experts on each other and we're good ministers, we're good parents to each other, we do things for each other that our parents didn't do, then that's a shared burden, right? We both benefit and we both also are burdened with the task. That's the quid pro quo. It's not I'm doing more than you're doing more. We're both doing these things, accepting each other as full burdens. And that is a very expensive proposition, something you can't get unless you pay somebody a lot of money. So we're trying to get people to understand that by having a shared vision and a shared purpose, people can insist that it goes in both directions. Again, this is what we do. We agreed. This is what we do. This is almost like a reshaping of society in a way, going from the individual, the I, 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 me, 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 to the we. That's right. Yeah. And not there's anything wrong with people being an I, but they're not going to find success in a love relationship in this culture um, because it's too unfair. It is. Can I read you something that you had written? Yeah. Okay. So you wrote in your book, We Do, you wrote, everyone has experienced loss and some kind of trauma in their life. However, some of these losses or traumas occur very early in childhood when the brain is developing. The problem isn't really the loss or the traumatic event, but rather that the individual who experiences such an event doesn't have an adult, someone considered safe or sensitive to turn to, someone who can respond in a timely manner to help regulate the experience. And so the child with the child's brain is left to their own devices to adapt to the intensity of the experience. And that's what causes the unresolved part. And these unresolved injuries influence further development, especially in the areas of safety and security. That's right. And that's even in adulthood the same way. Anytime we're hit by an extraordinary event, that is beyond the pale and that causes extreme sympathetic spikes right in the arousal system lots and lots of adrenaline is going to cause a ripple effect and if we do not have somebody nearby in a timely fashion to help us regulate the state we're in that is what is going to if it is uh, going to produce ptsd that is what will lead to ptsd in 9-11 one of the things we learned from it is our our trauma approach on, uh, it does not work to talk about the trauma, at least not right away. What did seem to work, the people, the workers that, that actually did not develop PTSD were the ones that got massages, hugs from their friends, mm. uh, even acupuncture. And it turns out that touch is at the top of the hierarchy when it comes to shutting off the neuroendocrine stress system. Without that, it it just runs. And then we can start to adapt in ways that are unpredictable, right? The brain will always adapt to the environment. 
Hearing you say this, I'm thinking, gosh, this is why sex is so important for couples. Well, yes, yeah, sex is important <laughs> for couples because they're skin to skin. Yeah, they're in, I mean, in an ideal situation, they're in a deep communication with each other and with each other's bodies and they're having contact. They're having contact. And, and if that, you know, were all that was necessary, that'd be great. But that's an area where people also yeah. get hurt. Yes, um, a lot. <laughs> A lot. They don't talk, you know, they make too many mistakes and errors and they, you know, they fill in the blanks with negativity biases and now they're off and running. So even that can be problematic. Yeah. Um, but hugging and, and cuddling and uh, that usually isn't fraught with this many problems of misunderstanding. Um, but yes, absolutely sex is in that area, but so is eye contact. I find that a lot, I mean, the, talking about the problems that can kind of show up with sex, I find that a lot of people also struggle sometimes with eye contact. It makes yeah. them super uncomfortable. So is there a way that you help people ease into that when they is something that's so uncomfortable for them? Well, I will have couples every time the first session face each other on mm -hmm. um, midway in the session. I do three hours, and so it's usually after about 40 minutes of interview. And then they're close together eye to eye, and I have them hold the eye contact uh, for an uncomfortable amount of time, and they're not allowed to talk. And this allows me to check for things. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, basically we're stressing an attachment system there called contact maintenance. And there are timing systems basically uh, there from childhood, how long I can stay in your eyes in contact or how long I can stay in physical contact with you or how long I can talk about us without, you know, piecing out, right? And so all sorts of things come from eye contact, sadness, longing, um, fear, shame, um, all sorts of things because eye contact sometimes has been used improperly in childhood. But a lot of people didn't get a lot of loving gaze as children. And so they feel very uncomfortable as adults with that high stimulation experience. And they start to become self-conscious. They become um, super aware of, of being looked at. And some people looked through or looked into as if they don't have any boundaries. Mm -hmm. So it's a very good diagnostic uh, to do this, this initial period. But anybody can acclimate to using eye contact in the proper way, in a way that actually uh, produces exciting love when you want it, but also quiet love, which is what Winnegott called, you know, going on being, right? It is resting in your eyes uh, in a meditative state uh, where there is nothing wrong in the world right now. I am safe, you are safe, and that's a lovely experience. Uh, but to be sure, eye contact is the, one of the most exciting things we'll ever do, more than touch, actually. I love practicing eye contact myself, it's, but I also do find that it's one of those things that it's, it takes a willingness to play with. Yeah. And yeah. I think this is maybe another place to kind of shift a little bit and talk about the importance of play. The importance of play. And, the importance and, of play, yeah. yeah. And the other thing is uh, uh, one uh, way that people can start to uh, expand their abilities to stay in eye contact is rather than let their mind float around, uh, is to uh, do a sort of an outside meditation, an outside focus on the other person's eyes and face. I don't have time to think about myself if I'm studying you, if I'm looking at every detail in your eyes and in your face, and I relax my body. If I relax my body, constantly scanning my body for tensions and dropping them as I pay 
continuous attention to your face, I will not be bothered. Okay. The problem is, is that I become self-referential when in eye contact and I start getting flooded by my own arousal and my own self-talk. And then I'm not really there. So if people are interested, and this is also very good for people with social anxiety that want to stay away from people uh, or groups of people, is to move in closely and, and just study faces, study the eyes. It'll get you off the hook of feeling self-conscious, and it'll give you a task. And we know, and this is very interesting, we know that the more we look at details in the face, in the human face, the more empathy we have. Um, it has an effect on our capacity for empathy. And the more we will start to actually fall in love with people because we fall in love through the eyes. Oh, it's so and beautiful. So, yeah. And so this is actually a trick um, to trick ourselves into uh, learning how to do this uh, and not, uh, you know, uh, get lost in our own uh, self-consciousness and anxiety. Oh, thank you for that. I think so many people are going to relate to being able to put that into practice more through that it description. Works. Yeah, yeah. It works. That's really beautiful. Just shifting back to play for a minute. When I think of play, what I think of is we need to feel safe and secure in order to open up that capacity for play, in order to be experimental and imaginative and do all the things that play invites us to do. Play is another form of language. It's another form of communication. Yes. But they also, they also interact because... Um, play can also help me feel safer uh, yes. under some circumstances. So they go hand in hand. Um, but you're quite right that, you know, uh, secure functioning relationships are more flexible because the play mat is larger. Yes. And can do rough and tumble together without either one hitting their heads and crying, right? Yeah. And I, I so I wanted to say more about that. Go ahead. Well, no, I was just thinking about, you know, the places where individuals have trouble playing generally in their life. They have trouble playing with their partners or they have just trouble playing and inviting in that imagination. I was wondering if you have advice or thoughts about how just to get more curious about that. I think curiosity is usually one of the ingredients that's missing. There's a lot of things that go into why people can or cannot play. Um, just like there's a lot of reasons that go into why people cannot, uh, do not have a sense of humor or do have a sense of humor. Some of those are may refer to uh, neurobiological deficits, um, real structural things in the brain where they're just not processing information in the same way. Yeah. Um, you know, for instance, people on the autistic spectrum have a hard time with certain kinds of humor like sarcasm uh, or irony. Uh, they don't get it and they could be offended by mm -hmm. it. Uh, so that's one area there. But then there are other things like trauma. People who are afraid can't play. You can't play if you're afraid. Um, if you're in a place of uh, depression or abandonment depression, um, you can't play. And so, you know, this is one of those areas that are, that's really tricky and requires, you know, just the right person, you know, to pull them into this area of being more flexible. Um, but sometimes you get, because I know you're a couple therapists, sometimes you'll get two people who don't play and two people who have no sense of humor. And the reason we worry about that is that they tend to be a little more rigid and they can snap instead of bend, right? Yes, uh, often. And, yeah. And so, again, we're getting into arousal systems also, where it's very hard for them to stay within window of tolerance, a place where there's enough relaxation to be able to think.
right? Yeah. I often talk about that window of tolerance a lot with the couples that I work with and helping them just to learn what that means for themselves. Can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners as well? Sure. Window of tolerance was something uh, that was coined by Dan Siegel, Mm -hmm. uh, I think around 2000. And we've all co-opted it since. And it's basically an idea. It's a schematic. It's not real. But, you know, if you look at it as uh, your bandwidth, right, an area that is uh, constantly expanding and shrinking throughout the day, that is your optimal state of arousal. In other words, you have just enough alertness and just enough relaxation to be able to use every part of your brain without compromise. And what that does, it allows you to stay within what uh, Stephen Porges calls social engagement, meaning that I'm able to tolerate more and more frustration and irritation uh, without uh, going too high and going over the boundary into hyper arousal or going down into hypo arousal. And the wider that bandwidth is, the better I get along with people and the better I can stick with frustrating people and situations without acting out. And so if you have a narrow bandwidth, part of health is increasing that area and having more you know, variability, being able to move up and down within that area without going too high and moving into a fight or flight uh, system, which is, uh, changes the brain and changes the way we see things, or into life threat, where we can't fight or flee into very uh, deep uh, states of shame or anaclytic depression, where we also can't think. And so this is done best interactively. You and I are watching each other as we talk. And if I see you start to move up too much or see you start to move down too much, I can do something, not comment because that is uh, that can be threatening, but do something. And when you see me, you're doing something. And that is how we're just sort of dancing together and staying within that realm, even when talking about dicey or dangerous material like money and sex or time or messiness and kids, whatever it is. Right now. That window of tolerance can be greatly compromised by lack of sleep, poor eating habits, no exercise, physical pain is the great uh, compromiser, um, feeling sick, uh, having a viral infection, bacterial infection, any of these things can greatly narrow that window of tolerance. So it's not static, right? Right. And so there are self-regulatory techniques that people can use when alone, but it's, I think, much more effective to teach partners how to co-regulate and manage that system together. Which has me thinking about a few different components, because when we were talking about eye contact before, one of the things that I've read a lot in your work is how we miss so much when we're not looking at each other. When yeah. we're having conversations over the phone, when we're texting each other, when we're sitting side by side, when we're not right. making eye contact, how right. much gets missed in just the language? Cause, yeah, because yeah. language, as we know, is already uh, screwy. And, you know, I will get your words a little better if I'm looking at your eyes and, and scanning your mouth and your eyes. Uh, we know this from infant studies that as the, as the child begins to tune into faces after the second week, and their eyes are starting to develop and they're able to actually see that there's almost a triangular uh, gaze at a person who's talking, always going from the mouth to predominantly the left eye. Uh, that's because of the contralateral hookup to the right hemisphere, the left eye constantly for social cueing. And we do that as adults as well. And that also helps us air correct words and meaning. So 
we are visual animals. Uh, we have more visual centers in the brain than any other. And we rely on vision as a primary co-regulator. Without that, we make more errors. So prosody, voice, is good, but by itself, again, errors. Why? If I can't see you, I'm going to see you uh, as a representation in my head. If I'm not feeling good, the picture of you isn't good. And I'm going to carry that as a priming effect in how I talk with you and what I hear from you. Um, the same thing, if I'm looking away and we're fighting and I'm not looking at you, I'm not in real time. And now I'm looking at a negative you that's static, even though your face has changed, your, your tone has changed, but I'm still with the angry you, even though you're sad now. And this is going to lead to a huge, can I swear? A huge clusterfuck um, because we're going to be completely out of tune. And this is where we get into trouble. So I tell people, if you're going to engage in anything that's exciting or negative, that keep your eyes on the ball because it is a fast acting, lightning fast process that if you do not see it, it didn't happen. And now you are operating on a separate track and it is not a good idea to not keep your eyes on your partner, even as you're fighting, uh, because you're going to miss a lot of things. You're going to make more mistakes, more errors. I, you know, when I was reading your book, I was reading it um, beside my husband. I was sitting next to him. And one of the exercises you have in there is the lying game. Oh, yeah. That's fun. We started talking about it and it was, it, we were giggling. It was so fun to think about this game. And I'm thinking about, this is such a great way to put this into practice and to to really just experience what the eye contact can really teach us about each other and how it can help us get to know each other. So do you want to share a little bit about that? It was just so potent to me. But the lying game is, I mean, all of this should be just play and fun. But a lying game is, is one way to start to pick up your partner's tells, right? How well do I know you, right? Because I want to be a Rebecca whisperer, right? And so um, I'm observing you, watching you, and I'm seeing uh, what you do under these circumstances and how it's different from that circumstance. And that leads me to really be able to read you and also to find the baby in you. So it's not simply a lie detector test, um, but it does uh, start to alert us to the differences um, when we're really looking at the person we are supposed to know very well, when there's something a little bit off. And I want to warn people that when you're watching and you're noticing tells, you're noticing something that where your partner isn't doing something they normally do, or they're doing something they normally don't do, you cannot interpret it. You cannot know the source or the target of why their body uh, changed or their face changed, but you do know something happened and then you can be curious, right? I don't want people going out there and suddenly, you know, uh, thinking they know what the other person's thinking. They don't. But you can tell when something is not the same um, in terms of baseline, right? Uh, you strayed from your baseline. You're unusually stiff right now. Your mouth isn't moving as much. Excuse me. Uh, I know you. What's going on? Yeah. I think it's all just so, so eye-opening in terms of this new way <laughs> no pun intended at all. Um, but in terms of how we can re learn how to re-regulate ourselves in our adult relationships and in some ways use well-functioning, secure love relationships to even repair what yes. wasn't there for us perhaps early on. 
We have to understand we've never lived outside of our head and we never will. <laughs> Everything is subjective. And when we are, you know, imagining things, when we're imagining what our, our partner's intentions are, when we are anticipating threat, we're doing so in a, an internal way that is using these rapid recognition systems based on memory yeah. and we're mostly wrong. And that's the primitives that you're talking about there. Uh, the primitives, yep. and we're mostly wrong. Now, when it comes to life and death, we'd rather err on being wrong, you know, than be killed. But in love relationships, that can cause a lot of trouble, right? And so for people who are listening who may have experienced a lot of different kinds of traumas in their life, in their early life. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm standing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I move okay, around. You were bouncing. So I bounced on my ball. I said, oh, we got balls. So when we're talking about people who have experienced a lot of trauma in their yeah. life, yeah. there's a lot of re-regulating that has to happen here in order for them to be able to kind of not feel so threatened. That's right. And it's yeah. going to be hard. And it's, a lot of it's going to rely, uh, depend on the, uh, their partner's ability to be patient. And usually where there's one, there's the other. In yeah, that's what but, I find a lot. Yeah. The problem with trauma is that it not only greatly affects the memory system, but it also alters arousal regulation and it causes reflexes, right? There's something similar, familiar to the way you're behaving that feels like danger to me. Mm -hmm. And then I will act and react in a way that may cause the problem uh, that may, you know, amplify something in you that does, in fact, feel uh, threatening to me. So th this is the bind that trauma creates. Yeah. And yet one of the best places to work with it is in the couple system with a third person, uh, you know, co-managing and regulating the couple because their primaries, right? And they have the best opportunity to heal this uh, as long as they're supervised, I think, because people left to their own, uh, you know, uh, tendencies are going to amplify the negative and they're going to make things worse. They need help amplifying the positive as well. That's right. One of the things that, that you say in your book, um, and I might be misquoting you a little bit or paraphrasing you here, but essentially it's that People hurt people and people heal with people. That's right. Yeah. And you can only, you can, if any, most everything we suffer from is interpersonal. And the way uh, that we get healed is through interpersonal relationships, which is why, you know, I always say if, you know, if you're going to be in a relationship, be in one. You don't pull yourself out into a pit stop and decide you're going to have to, you know, um, learn about yourself, learn to love learn about relationships outside a relationship. You can't do it. You have to be inside the relationship. That's how you learn. And so you just keep doing it. Stan, thank you so much. I can't wait to share this episode. Um, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Well, if people are interested in the training, this mm -hmm. is, um, it's a lot of fun. It is a nonlinear polytheoretical approach, which means it uh, it takes a couple of years to really start to understand. But we do trainings all over the country and outside of the country. If people want to learn this, uh, they can go to thepactinstitute.com, P-A-C-T, thepactinstitute.com. And also, Tracy, my wife and I do couples retreats all around the country. We're just starting that season now. And if you're interested, a good way to learn this approach is to be a couple in a retreat. 
Uh, we have a lot of therapists who are in their retreats and, uh, and to attend one. Uh, that's a really good way to familiarize yourself with this approach. And those retreats are open to the public as well. You don't have to be a therapist to come. No, along. no, no. In fact, it's not really for therapists. It's yeah. for the general public. It just happens that a lot of therapists do go. How many couples typically are at a retreat, just so listeners who are thinking about it might know what to prepare themselves for? It depends. We just got back from Costa Rica. We had a seven-day retreat with uh, with 21 couples um, in Kripala. We, we will have 30 um, in uh, Omega or Esalen. We may have 30 or 40. So uh, it really depends. But there is something about being in a group with other couples mm -hmm. that normalizes everything. People yeah. will find that it's not them. It's everybody that's going through this. Everybody. Well, that sounds so impactful. Thank you so much for all the work that you bring into the world and for taking some time to share it with us here today. Thank you, Rebecca. It's a pleasure talking with you. It's a pleasure to talk with you, too. I hope that today's episode shed some light on why relationships can be so difficult and gave you some helpful tools or ideas about where to start to bring yourself back into a state of safety and security in your own love relationships. I also wanted to let you know a little bit more about how you can work with me. I maintain my relationship therapy practice in New York, and I also run intensive couples retreat experiences. You can learn more about both at connectfulness.com. You can also join my Connectfulness community. It's a virtual community and it's totally free. That's at connectfulness.com slash community. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. And if you're a therapist in private practice, then check out the Connectfulness Collective. Come root in with us over at connectfulness.com slash collective. Today's episode, again, was brought to you by Therapy Notes. I'm currently moving my own practice over to Therapy Notes, and I can tell you that one of my favorite things so far is that there's live phone support available 73 hours a week, including Saturdays, and it's usually available in under a minute. You can get two months free when you sign up at therapynotes.com, and that includes a free data import after signing up for a free trial. Go to therapynotes.com and use the promo code CONNECTFULNESS. A few extra little gratitudes... I'd like to thank Christy Hausler, my behind-the-scenes amazing podcasting team, Sarah and Chris Farris at Kidney Stone Studio for the delicious soundtrack music, Blue Rabbit Studios for the cover art, and please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events.